but we had a chance to go to Grace Homeschoolers Fine Arts Night. And while we were there, we saw two very special people we love dearly, Josh and Jim. And they, God gave them each uh, a very prophetic, I might add, um, spoken word. And all night I heard compliments about the two of them. Uh, and, and it was, they, they were at the end of the whole evening. Um, and guys, I just want you to know I'm really proud of the jobs that you guys did. Very powerful. Uh, Josh was going to be giving his spoken word tonight, but something's kind of grabbed a hold of his throat, so we're going to wait another week. Um, and then Jim is going to be doing an- his another week. But uh, awesome, guys. I had a great time. Um, I can remember many times in my life in which I came to a point in which I desperately needed God to intervene. Been there? Any of you guys here tonight? You, I mean, you really needed God to come through. Very crucial. I mean, as our family was expanding, uh, Jimmy came along, child number five, and it was a three-bedroom house. That means one bedroom for Meredith and I and two for our four girls and one boy. And we're thinking, how are we going to do this? And so along he comes, and, you know, for the first little while, the, the baby's with us and, and such, and, but there comes a time in which we realize, hey, we can't stay in this three-bedroom house. God needs to expand us, and he needs to provide another home. So we're thinking about the possibility of adding an extension onto the roof, uh, excuse me, onto, above the garage. And I'm getting an estimate like $50,000 to put in a room up there. And it's like, are you serious? That would, that's like a money pit. We're just going to pour money, $50,000 into this. There's no way when we sell the house we'd be able to get that back. Bad investment. So we start looking around and we're looking into our, the neighborhood we're presently in. And it just seems like closed door after closed door. It's not going to work. And I'm going to just make a long story short about how God opened doors, did miracles, really did miracles, and he provided us to be able to stay there. Some of you are at that place, uh, just like Meredith and I, in which we really feel like, God, you're in this. We just, we just sense you are in this, and yet the door is not opening. I want you to know that God is the God of expansion. Tonight's sermon is the great expansion. The great expansion. Expansion, that truth, that principle of expansion is in the DNA, if you will, of the kingdom of God. And tonight, I believe that God wants to do something in our hearts. And and yes, we're going to continue on our series, Israel and the Church. And you're going to see how all of this is going to come together. There's actually uh, some large portions of scripture. And I'm going to need to like fly through them. Because I want to come back to this principle of expansion in the kingdom of God. Because we see it right off the bat in our first text. If you'll turn with me to Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54. Now this verse, these verses, one through three, are very commonly uh, preached on or spoken to one another about expansion. And yes, we are going to tackle this, but we have to ask a very honest question. Are we doing a disservice to this? Because you will clearly see that this is a passage that is given to Israel... And how dare we as the church rob Israel of its promises and think so highly that God would somehow apply them to us? This is a question of hermeneutics. This is a question in which we cannot afford to fly blind. 
How many of you have ever seen a movie and the, the camera's in the, in the cockpit and the plane is you know, on this adventure, it's suspense, the music's rising and they're trying to flee and suddenly they go through a cloud and there's mountains everywhere and you're wondering, no, this, they're going to crash and burn, they're going to hit a mountain. Now, how many of you, like Cole, know that that truly should be an impossibility? Because even though we cannot see anything but mist or clouds, they truly are not flying blind. It feels that way on our end, the audience, it feels that way, but they have what they call the instrument panel. And that is the very purpose, so that they can fly at night and they can fly in clouds. They don't have to see through the cockpit. Now, would that be correct, Cole? Yes, thank you. And and consequently, they can look at the instrument panel and figure out exactly where they are. They even you can even tell if you're upside down, right? Yeah, that would be. And and but we do not fly blind as we're going through and trying to interpret a scripture passage like this. We have an instrument panel, and that instrument panel either is the immediate context that speaks clearly to us, and there's no guesswork in it, or it's through the New Testament authors telling us what a passage means. And so we're going to really rely heavily on these two things, and in the beginning, even more heavily on the very fact that New Testament authors address certain Old Testament passages, and they are our instrument panel, so we are not flying blind. Now, I'm just going to let you know right now, I do believe that many, as they search through the Old Testament, they, just, they feel certain passages mean one thing. And I'm going to tell you they are flying blind because it's a matter of guesswork. Our hermeneutic, and it is a certain hermeneutic, is we look to the New Testament authors and we ask them, so Paul or Peter or James or Jesus, what does this Old Testament passage mean? And if, they're, if they quote it and they explain it, well, guess what? That is what it means. We're going to find that here with this passage. Isaiah 54, I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. Sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child. Burst into song, shout for joy, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge, expand, enlarge the place of your tent, stretch your tent curtains wide, do not hold back, strengthen your cords, excuse me, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes. You get this feeling of expansion here. Verse 3, 4, this is now explaining the reason for the expansion. You will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will possess nations and settle in their desolate cities. I think that as we seek to understand this, we need to immediately ask two very fair questions. Who is this desolate woman or this barren woman? And who is this woman who had a husband? I want you to just very quickly turn with me to Isaiah 49. And in verse 21, it says, Then you will say in your heart, Who bore me these? I was bereaved and barren. I was exiled and rejected. Who brought these up? 
I was left all alone. But these, where have they come from? This is from this barren, desolate woman. And it tells us that she was in exile. I was exiled and rejected. And apparently now no longer in exile, she now has all of these descendants and she's wondering, where did these come from? Do you get the feel of this question that she's asking? This is the barren woman. The barren woman would be Israel, often Babylonian exile, bereaved, and basically with no hope. I'm going to encourage you, Psalm 127 is is a picture, it's a psalm, when they have come back filled with joy, as if men were dreaming, it says. We're going to look at that passage some weeks from now. But this barren woman... In other words, barren or desolate, meaning she can't have children. And the question is, wait a second, then where did all of these children come from? We need to ask that question and answer it. Now, who is the woman who had a husband? In the very next chapter, not 55, but the very next chapter of 49, once we find out the barren woman, it says in chapter 50, verse 1, It says, this is what the Lord says. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Jeremiah 3 speaks along these same lines. The Israelites had gone into exile and God has served her papers of divorce, certificates of divorce. Granted, only for a season until they repented. And because she did not, Jeremiah says, because she did not marry another, Deuteronomy 24 says, God could take her back. And he did. But before that time of being sent away, who was married to this woman? The Lord. This is the woman before exile. This is the woman who had children. This is the woman who had a husband who was married. So it gives us this picture of Israel before the exile. Look at how they filled the land. Look at all their descendants. Look at all of their children or her children. But now during exile, where are they? She's bereaved. She's barren. And yet the promise is this woman coming back from exile will have more descendants than Israel did before the Babylonian captivity. But in all honesty... The focus here is more than just on the barren woman. The focus is on her descendants. Now we know this because as we move into verse 2, it talks about this concept of increase. And why, do, why is, first of all, the barren woman rejoicing because of all her descendants? Why is it that they are needing to enlarge the place of their tent, her tent, and stretch the curtain, the tent curtains wide open so as to welcome in? Why is it that they need to, she needs to lengthen her cords, the cords of her tent need to be lengthened, expansion? Why strengthen the stakes? It's going to get so full, it's going to feel like it's busting out. And she is going to need to make sure that the strengths are the, the stakes are even stronger, bigger, fatter, driven into the ground further. Why? Because of the many descendants. So it seems at this point that these descendants would be those when Israel comes back from exile, they're just going to expand. But here is a here, here is a truth 
that we need to realize nothing like that happened. It's just as far as that type of expansion. When they came back in 539 BC, they began to rebuild. This is true. So in a physical way, in some semblance, they did expand. But they were by no means more numerous than before the exile. And then it talks about their descendants dispossessing nations, settling in their desolate cities. What is that all about? So if we're not careful, we can tend to fly blind here a little bit and just say, you know what, I think it means... I'm going to just throw something out there with regard to many people as they interpret this. They say, this is Israel coming into their homeland in 1948. And so this is a promise that will be fulfilled. So it will be a very physical or or a very physically fulfilled promise. And I just want to say, okay, I hear what you're saying, but how do you know that for sure? And there is a New Testament passage, Galatians 4, turn there with me if you would, in which Paul gives his interpretation of this. So as we turn to Galatians chapter 4, let's realize that Galatians is a, a book in which Paul is purposefully trying to undermine this heresy of, from the Judaizers. What they're trying to do is they're trying to take the law and impose it upon the new converts, uh, Gentiles for the most part, and say for you to really become Christians, for you to really uh, be the people of God and really saved, then you have to not only believe in Jesus, but you have to follow the law. And Paul begins in Galatians 4 verse 21, he says, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? And it gives us a story of Abraham, from Abraham's time, about Sarah and Hagar. And it moves on to verse 24, and he says, these things may be taken figuratively or allegorically. Now, I'm not so concerned about the allegory, but I'm concerned about what Paul is going to tell us concerning this is that this, referring to the Old Testament passage we're going to read, that referring to how, it's, how it applies in his day, our day. So let me go on. So these things can be taken figuratively, and the Greek word there literally is allegorically. Literally is allegorically. Okay. For the woman, excuse me, the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. Now, Paul wants to substantiate this. Now, if Paul is just speaking as an illustration, he's not going to substantiate an illustration with the word of God. He's only going to substantiate something that he's saying is truth with the word of God. Okay? And there's a big difference. I mean, illustrations, I share illustrations, and illustrations can apply to some degree, but we don't always take them literally, of course. But Paul is needing to interpret, and he's needing to use an Old Testament scripture passage to make his point, and it's the point that I'm more concerned about. 
So here he goes. Verse 26, he goes on, and, uh, 27 rather, and he says, For it is written. Let me substantiate what I just, and my point now, with an Old Testament scripture passage. And what does he quote from? But Isaiah 54, verse 1. Be glad, O barren woman who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains, because more are the children of this, this, this desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now, my question in Isaiah 54 was, who are the descendants of the barren or desolate woman? Paul tells us in this very next verse. Now, you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born, to the ordin- born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave, woman, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Who are the descendants of the barren woman? Who are the descendants of this desolate woman? He says, you brothers, you are. She is our mother, so to speak. We just said that this barren woman was Israel in exile, and then she's going to come back. There is going to be uh, this refrain that you're going to see throughout the Old Testament, this sense of hope, and it's, and it's the return of the captivity. Or, translated another way, a very valid translation, restored, restore the fortunes of... And it speaks of Israel, returning the, the return of the captivity of Israel, the restoring the fortunes of, of Israel. And we're going to get into that in, in another time. But this return from exile, what does this mean? Because in Isaiah 54, it's talking about expansion. And it needed to, this, the expansion was going to take place because of the incredible number of descendants. And Paul says, who are they? Who are these children of promise? He says, you are. Brothers, you are. In chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, it says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, who would let themselves be circumcised? The Gentiles. Christ will be of no value to you at all. Who is you? The you, now you brothers, verse 28 of chapter 4. You brothers, these these are Gentiles who are coming into faith. You are the children of promise. You who want to be circumcised. Gentiles, if you want to be circumcised, then Christ will become of no value to you. That is, they're finding this sense of super Christianity or maybe even salvation, not just in following Christ, but adding the law. And they're going to be circumcised. Paul says, no, don't do that. You're going to become slaves again. No, you are children of the promise. Now, he makes this point even earlier in chapter 3, verse 29. And he says that in in chapter 3, verse 29, he says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Who are the heirs according to the promise? That is the promise of Abraham, because that's the context here of chapter 3. Those who believe, along with the man of faith, Abraham. It says that 
He believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. You can find that in verses 6 and verse 9. This is both Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus. We belong to Christ in which there's no Jew or Gentile. Verse 28, chapter 3, verse 28. No Jew or Gentile. If you belong to Christ, then you are heirs of the promise. Who are the descendants, Paul is telling us? Who are the descendants of this barren woman? They are the church. They are the the Jews, and and most specifically as he's speaking to the Gentiles, but they are believers in Jesus Christ, heirs of the promise or promises. So Paul is our God. We are not flying blind here. Our instrument panel has just told us. Isaiah 54, these descendants, they are the church. And so as we go back to Isaiah 54, where we, we encounter this concept of expansion... In which we, the church, are the descendants. And let me just under, let me, let's just understand something here. That when they came back from captivity, they were oppressed again by the Greek Empire. They were oppressed again by the Roman Empire. The Jews have been oppressed constantly. And if we're going to take this literally... We're going to encounter a problem because as we look over there in verse 9, he says, To me, this is like the days of Noah when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I I have sworn to you to be angry with you. Excuse me. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. If he's talking about this being literally, he, we have to accept the fact that he does rebuke Israel again. And in 70 AD, they lost almost everything. And he severely rebukes them, calling them to the... Jesus said, if only you knew today what would bring you peace. And then he, speak, he speaks prophetically that that generation would see Israel fall. So... As as we look into this passage then, we see this tremendous expansion. And Paul tells us that this expansion is the Gentiles being added. Now, originally, understand the remnant. Those right after Christ, the the church was almost entirely, exclusively uh, Jewish in, in heritage, in culture. And for about one decade, it was almost entirely Jewish. And then Gentiles began to be added. Cornelius, we read about in Acts 10. And then Acts 11, we we hear about the people going to and spreading the gospel as they go to Antioch. And the grace of God is so evident there. And the church begins to expand. And they move now into Turkey, present-day Turkey, and on into present-day Europe. And the gospel just begins to explode. And I want to ask you this question before I go any further. Don't you think it's just a little bit odd... That in the days of the Israelites coming back from exile, in which people did not live in tents anymore, that he is, he is speaking of a tent here. Why doesn't he talk about a building? Why doesn't he talk about, I don't know, metaphorically the, the temple? Or Why is he talking about a tent? Isn't that a little bit strange? That, that just doesn't seem to, to fit the context here. Because they had, they had homes built of... Stone and such, not, not tents. Why, why tents? Let me take you 
Because I believe that in the mind of Isaiah, whether he fully knew this or not, perhaps prophetically, but God put it in his mind to write it this way. Look at Genesis 9.27. All the way back to Genesis. Genesis 9 speaks of Noah. Didn't we just read about Noah in verse 9? He speaks of Noah. Noah brings a curse upon Canaan and a blessing upon Shem and Japheth. And in in Genesis 9, uh, this is after the flood. In Genesis 9, he speaks a promise to, excuse me, he speaks a promise to Japheth in verse 27. May God extend or expand the territory of Japheth. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. Here's the significance of that. Israel, or Jews, are the descendants of Shem. They're called Semites. The, 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 the house of Shem, if you will, the, the, these Semites are, are going to become God's chosen people in Israel, through, through Abraham and become a nation called Israel. And he is saying here that the blessing that God pours out upon Shem, that is through Abraham, Israel, that blessing will now, be a, will now be cast upon Japheth. Japheth, it says, Japheth will live in the tents of Shem. Didn't we just read that they were the, the challenge, the command, if you will, to this barren woman was open wide your tent curtains. Why? So the, your descendants will come in and expand in, in, in such a, uh, an aggressiveness, if you will, that they're going to have to lengthen the cords and strengthen the stakes. They're going to have to expand this tent. Why? Because Japheth is coming in. Japheth, Japheth gave birth to so many of those nations in Europe. Do you want to see how Genesis 9.27 was fulfilled? Read the book of Acts. Read the book of Acts. I can't help but just sense that he's talking about Noah in Isaiah 54, and he's talking about tents, and you're just thinking, this just seems so incongruous. How does the concept of tents fit? And yet in the prophetic mind of God, he's saying this of Genesis 9.27 is that in Isaiah. And then as we now move forward in Galatians 4 and throughout the New Testament, throughout the book of Acts, this is its prophetic fulfillment in the Gentiles now being added and expanding in God's awesome powerful kingdom on earth. Now, I I don't think that we're flying blind here. I truly believe that that Paul is giving us insights here and and we're we're seeing that this is a fulfillment of prophecy hundreds, uh, thousands even of years before Isaiah's writing. I want us to turn to one last passage in Zechariah. So turn, turn to Zechariah. Zechariah is the second to the last book in the Old Testament. Chapter 2. Actually, chapter 1, verse 16, and then I'm going to read chapter 2 for you. 
We're on this theme of expansion, and we're seeing that it's very prophetic. It is not fulfilled in a literal way, though the Israelites did come back from captivity in a literal way, but there is a spiritual fulfillment in the church. And Paul has told us as much. Now, as we come to to Zechariah chapter 1, verse 16, we read these words. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and and there my house will be rebuilt. And the measuring line, I want you to highlight that phrase, measuring line. What is that? And the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. Now, we're going to pick it up, and and I don't believe that by skipping verses, I am taking chapter 2 out of context. I believe we have enough context. But in verse 1, it says, Then I looked up, and there before me was a man with what? A measuring line in his hand. I asked, Where are you going? He answered me to measure Jerusalem. don't Don't you think that a little bit odd? He's measuring Jerusalem. Okay. Well, we're going to need to understand what that means in a moment here. But he says, I'm to measure Jerusalem to find out how wide and how long it is. Then the angel who was speaking to me left and another angel came to meet me and said to him, said to the other one with the measuring line, he says, run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of men and livestock in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. Come, come, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have scattered you to the four winds of heaven, declares the Lord. Come, O Zion, escape you who live in the daughter of Babylon, for this is what the Lord Almighty says. After he has honored me, And has sent me against the nations that have plundered you. For whoever touches you touches the apple of my eye. I will surely raise my hand against them. So that their slaves will plunder them. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. Shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion. For I am Coming, and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with me in that day. Highlight that phrase, in that day. Highlight, I am coming, and highlight in that day. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. Highlight that phrase, my people. I will live among you, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. The Lord will inherit Judas' portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. He has roused himself from his holy dwelling. To do what? It tells us to come. We need to look at this concept of a, a measuring line. Measuring line is used in two ways in the Bible. And if you can think of a third one, please share it with me. I'm only aware of two ways. As you were to study this, this, this concept of measuring something, like Ezekiel did in chapters 40 to 48, he measures the city, he measures the temple, he measures the altar, he measures the courts, he measures everything. He counts the worshipers. And so he is he's using, this angel is, rather that I say Ezekiel, Ezekiel's reporting about how this angel is measuring these things. 
Measuring lines are used for two reasons, prophetically, two reasons in the Bible. The first is to bring judgment. I don't want to get into that one because I do not believe that that's what this is, is for. But you can read about that in Lamentations 2.8. Very clear. God is measuring Jerusalem and found them lacking and needs to bring judgment. The other way, though, in which a measuring line is used is to bring restoration, or the word that we have here is rebuild in chapter 1, verse 16, which would mean expansion. This we find, for example, in Jeremiah, write this down, Jeremiah 31, 38, and 39. You can also look then, once we understand this, uh, if you want to do some homework and read Revelation chapter 11, the temple in Jerusalem is, is being measured. That's, that's beyond our scope of study for tonight. He is specifically going to measure, with this measuring line, Jerusalem and my house, or the temple. Why does he need to measure them? He's rebuilding. In other words, they're expanding. They're be, it's being, Jerusalem's being restored. Why does he want to measure it? It tells us here in verse 4. It says, says because you're going to become a city without walls. Because of the great number of men and livestock in it. So because of the people. In Jerusalem, it's going, to be rest- it's going to need to be restored, and it's going to expand. Why do we know it's going to expand? Because there can't be any walls. They're going to expand beyond the walls of Jerusalem. So the walls will need to be removed as, it's, as Jerusalem's being rebuilt. Either those walls will not be rebuilt, or they're going to be taken down, but Jerusalem will no longer be a city with walls. Instead, God is going himself will be a wall of fire about it. Why? Because of the men and the livestock. The increased number of men and livestock. And a livestock is perhaps one of the most common ways to measure wealth. So we're talking about numerical and monetary growth here. I think we need to ask a very fair question. Is he being literal here? Or is he being symbolic with this? I think even from the beginning, we get this flavor, if you will. When we read these lines, Jerusalem will be a city without walls. Wait a second. Jerusalem has never been a city without walls. Jerusalem has always needed walls. Even when David attacked Jerusalem, it had walls. It has always had walls. They were broken down at times, but immediately, we read the book of Nehemiah, they were restored. There was, the gates were burned and Nehemiah went and, and he rallied the, the people of Jerusalem and they rebuilt the, the walls of Jerusalem. Jerusalem has never been a city without walls and yet this prophecy is, and it's very positive, not negative, it's positive. It will be a city without walls, but the wall of protection will not be that of stone, but what? A fire. Don't you get the sense that this, he is being very symbolic here? And so we're already heading down this pathway of, of it seems to be somewhat symbolic. And then we come to verse 6, and it, the challenge is to flee. Flee from the land of the north. And again, I, I don't mean to deride this view, 
But there are those who say this is talking about Israel becoming a nation in 1948. All I'm going to say is I don't see that here. And if we're going to see a prophecy about Israel becoming a nation in 1948, we just, we just can't do it with this passage. I was listening to somebody the other day and he was saying, yes, and the north is Russia. After World War II, Russia and, and Germany and Poland and begins to name several nations and, and I have to step back and say, but wait a second. He actually tells us the nation of the north, and it's not Russia, it's not Germany, and it's not Poland. He calls them the daughter of Babylon. Now, if we're going to interpret this literally, don't switch to sim- being symbolic here and say, well, you know, the empire of Babylon symbolically is Russia. I mean, it's not. It has nothing to do with Europe. Germany and such. This has nothing to do with Jews leaving Germany and coming to Israel in 1948. It can't. He's he's telling us these flee from the land of the north and then he says here, escape uh, verse 7, escape you who live in the daughter of Babylon. Now, let's understand something here. Zechariah was written after the Israelites came back to the land. Think about that. He is talking about the exiles in Babylon coming back. But wait a second. Zechariah, that's past. That's history, man. That's, that's already happened. They're, I mean, that's what you're, you're there. Zechariah and Haggai were there and trying to encourage them in 520 BC to you know, build the temple. Come on, guys. This is God's program. God's program is expansion. Get on with it. And, and eventually they, they did... They did finish it in 516 BC, but they ran against a lot of ran up against a lot of problems. But the exiles had already come home. Now there were more waves that came home. This is true. Ezra, Nehemiah came back for a short while, but is that what he's really talking about? It just seems that physically this has already been fulfilled. So why would there be a second return? But the point here is that this second return, this second return is the reason for Jerusalem or Zion expanding. Men, livestock expanding to the point where the walls need to be taken down or removed or not rebuilt or whatever reason. But Jerusalem is not going to be a city with walls anymore. Now, I'm going somewhere with this, and I, and I want to bring it home here very shortly, as I see my time is running out. But when will this second return occur to produce a, a city like Jerusalem with no walls? I, I think we're going to need to abandon this concept of when Israel became a nation in 1948. We, we're going to have to twist certain passages of Scripture and meanings of words to make, that, make this passage say that. Now, I did say... That for us not to fly blind, we need to, do one of two, we need to do one of two things, if not two things, both of them. Number one, what does the New Testament authors have to say about a passage? And number two, can the context make it very clear to us what he is talking about? And I think this, the context here can make it very clear for us. How can we do that? Look here in verse 10. Shout... And be glad, which, by the way, reflects the wording of Isaiah 54.1. Shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming. Who just said, I am coming? Read ahead there. Who just said, I am coming? 
Yahweh. This is so awesome. Skip the next verse. Read the next one. Yahweh is speaking again and he's saying it in first person, me. And who does Yahweh say sent him? Look in your verse there. Who sent Yahweh? Yahweh Almighty. Now, does that not cause confusion in your mind? Maybe even especially in the the mind of a Jew. Wait a second. How can Yahweh Almighty send Yahweh unless we understand who Yahweh is and who it is that is coming? Who it is that is coming, I am coming, is clearly Jesus. And when Jesus comes, he says, this is what will happen. Now, Jesus has come. We know Jesus came, and we know that he's coming again. And I'm going to say, because of a lack of time right now, it cannot refer to his second coming. Just cannot. But when it is first coming, what will happen? I am coming, and I will live among you. And then he says in verse 11, many nations will be joined with Yahweh in that day. In what day? In the day he comes, many nations will be joined with the Lord and will become my people. This is the Gentiles being added to God's people, God's holy people, God's, the covenant that he made, this new covenant. Jesus is coming. For what reason? Because he wants the nations now to be added to him and to become his people. This is fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus. This is the context. Now, I, there's more to that, and I'm just going to encourage you, study it some more and see if this is not so. This expansion that is to take place is the burgeoning of the church, is the kingdom of God that it was taken away from the Jews because they rejected Jesus and now is given to another people. Jesus said this with regard to a parable he gave. I mentioned this last week. And this kingdom now is going to explode, is going to grow. And expand, and you get this sense of it just seems like God's purpose is the, 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 it, DNA in His kingdom, if you will, is expansion, expansion, promise. And, and you can read it over and over throughout the Old Testament prophecies that are coming to pass when the people of Israel come back to their land, it says. And here, anyway, it clearly means that the first coming of Jesus, the remnant, the Jews who, who believe in Jesus, who start the church, and then the expansion into nations, actually, as Isaiah says, dispossessing nations. I want to make this statement. As soon as I find it in my notes here. This city of Jerusalem is going to be a city without walls. But there will be a wall. And it is going to be a wall of fire. And Yahweh is going to be that wall of fire. Can I just ask you this? In the face of this awesome expansion, why does he want to communicate to us? And I want to bring this home now. Make it real for where we are at. In our present day. Why does God. Here in Zechariah 2. Want to communicate. As you are expanding. He needs to make this point. I will be a wall of fire. 
around you. Don't you get the sense of protection? Why? I'm going to say this. I want you to write this down. Expansion always makes us vulnerable. Expansion always makes us vulnerable. It, it pushes us into uncharted territory, open to attack. It, it presses us beyond our comfort zone. It, just in the natural. The expansion of wealth. It causes others to take note of that and to focus on a person's wealth and find out how they can get that wealth from them. How many times, and this is so true, someone wins the lottery and what happens? Hello, 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 phone call after phone call because people want their money. And they're going to, and many times they set them up and trick them into some wild investments that fall flat with the increase or the expansion of wealth. Some people knocking on the doors attracted to that wealth and they want it. Expansion always makes us vulnerable. How about the expansion of fame? One word, paparazzi, okay? Expansion of family costs more money. There's more health care. There's more problems. There's more things to go wrong. There's more hard work. There's, there's, there's more of our attention and love and you name it that goes into the expansion of a family. How about expansion of a business? It requires more oversight. You can, you can actually spread your business too thin and in expanding, expand, expanding your business too thin, you make yourself vulnerable to your competition to come in and take that market. So when you expand your business, you have to do so wisely because expansion always makes us vulnerable. Expansion of territory, armies spread too thin, just like in a business, spread too thin, making them vulnerable to the enemy's attack. I believe that expansion is God's agenda. It's his purpose. It's his goal. Summed up in one word that Jesus gave, Go. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. But how are they going to do that? Go. By going. That's how they're going to make disciples. By expanding, by moving beyond the borders. And when you move beyond the borders, it requires faith. There's this sense of vulnerability. And I just want, I want you to write down, what is it that God is trying to expand in your life? What is it that God is increasing a vision for in your heart? What is it that God is starting to cause circumstances to unfold and opening doors of opportunity? What is he moving you towards in this area of expansion? Now, many times expansion can be, or expansion can feed this sense of self or selfish ambition because it it becomes all about us. Can I just say this? That whatever God is doing in expanding you in ministry or business or anything, family, it is not about you. It is not about us, church. It is about Him, it's about His kingdom and His glory. That's why God has to be the glory within Jerusalem. That's what Zechariah just told us. Turn back to Isaiah 54. 
I got to hurry with this. Isaiah 54. We read verses 1 through 3. We could read the entire chapter. We just don't have time. We read verse 9. We could talk about, you know, O afflicted city. Uh, I'm so tempted to get into that. I can't. Um, In verse 15, he says this. He's just talking about this awesome expansion and the jewels that are going to be used to form this beautiful afflicted city to make it glorious. And he says, if anyone does attack you, verse 15, with, you're with me? It will not be my doing. Whoever attacks you will surrender to you. This, this, is, you, this is for the woman and the, and the descendants of the barren woman. This is you, church. Whoever would come against you, it's not of the Lord's doing. In fact, those who come against you will surrender to you. That is God's agenda when it comes to the expansion of his kingdom for his people. We will expand. Maybe God wants to expand your business to feed into the kingdom. Maybe God wants to take you places, maybe with business or or school or, or whatever it would be, ideas, ministry, so that you can impact more people. Different levels. God places people in politics. God, Yes, he does, by the way. God places people in businesses to be able to connect with others. Some who have opportunities to connect with CEOs, to be able to impact them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the expansion that we are talking about. God is expansion focused. But he says here in verse 15, he's trying to communicate, but with expansion, it will make you vulnerable. But understand, this is my promise to you. If someone attacks you, Not only is it not my doing, but those who attack you will surrender to you. Skip down to verse 47. No weapon forged against you will prevail. And you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the saints of the Lord. And this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. This is your promise. This is God's love letter and promise to you. His church. Can I just say this? That if you are not in a season of expanding, you are in a season of getting ready to. Let me just say that one more time. If you are not in a season of expansion or expanding, you are in a season of getting ready to. Why? Because the DNA of God's kingdom is expansion. God doesn't want us to regress. God doesn't want us to face the enemy and turn tail and run. God is not about retreat. God is not about small. Though I'm not opposed to small. I've experienced small a lot in my life, but it was simply to prepare me for something bigger and expanding because it's in those times in which there's no expansion and the waters are kind of quiet that God is able to minister certain truths to you to prepare you expansion. Expansion always makes us vulnerable though. What is God expanding in your life? Can I just say that as you are expanding, as God is using you in expanding, you, he is putting you on the front lines 
It is the front lines. Listen here. It is the front lines that are the ones who are most open to attack. And I don't say that to discourage you because we are in this Jerusalem without walls. And it is, its walls is God himself and it is a wall of fire. There are even our attackers will surrender to us. There is no weapon forged against you that will prevail. It might seem with our own human eyes that's prevailing, Lord, help me. And he's saying, no, step out of the boat, have faith, move forward. Don't hesitate, don't just sit in the boat. I've got something awesome for you. Move forward, you're too comfortable. Don't get me wrong here. There are seasons in which expanding is not for us, but is only getting us ready to expand. What if you are not in that expanding mode? I want you to write down. You've already written down what you feel God is preparing or going to use you or is presently using you in expanding. Whatever that means to you. A number of things. I've listed some of them. If you're in that season of not expanding, what is God teaching you? What is he instilling in you and getting you ready for that expansion? Now, don't get me wrong. Because we live in a day in which people, and I rub shoulders with them, unfortunately, every day, in which they want to build a church and they want to build it big. Because big means that they are big. And that is selfish ambition. And may God erase that from the heart of every pastor, including mine. Our goal, your goal, is expanding with Christ and only Christ. Whether it's in our business or in our family, whether it is ministering more effectively or beyond our borders, if you will, God has got to, Jesus has got to be the very center. He is the glory in Jerusalem. I can remember when, I'm going to close with this, when Meredith was pregnant with our first child, our family was growing. We wanted to have a lot of kids. And we said, okay, God, this is the first one. And Meredith had had an accident some years before that shattered a portion of her pelvis into hundreds of pieces. We weren't sure how she was going to do with this. Into her fourth month, she began, fifth month, she began to experience some pretty severe pain in her pelvis. And she was very concerned. I was very concerned. And we just said, you know what? I, I think it was at that time we, uh, we, we mentioned it to the doctor. And the doctor said, well, you know what? You're just going to have to have a C-section, uh, which means, at least to us, translation, you're going to have to have a very limited number of children. And we just said, God... I believe that you want us to expand. I believe that you, you want us to, I believe you want to heal my wife. I believe that you want to do this and that you don't want her to have a seaside. There's something in me and there's faith arising in the face of expansion. We're, we're this attack of, of, of limitation, limitation. And we just said, you know, we're going to go to the elders of our church. We were, we were part for a short season, part of a very large church. And we took them to a very godly man that we both knew, an elder in the church. And he, in the back room, there were a number of people they were praying over. And we came up to him and we said, you know, I can't remember his name. We said, we, we, we need prayer. We shared it with him. He anointed Meredith with oil. We agreed in prayer. It wasn't half-hour prayer. It was, a, it, was, it was a few minutes. And he just, he prayed bullet prayers. He prayed with faith. And he spoke 
healing and, and, and prayed healing over her life. And the pains went away. And the doctor who prophesied doom and it's going to be so painful and you're going to need to, your pelvis won't be able to support the weight of a baby. You're going to have to have it C-section, probably have to have it early, on and on. None of that came to pass. Katie Beth was born naturally. We had five children born naturally. God healed my wife. And then years later, years and years later, when uh, I'm trying to remember the reason for it, she uh, I think she, you injured your back, right? Wasn't it something like you would, you would hurt your back? And we took her to the doctor, and she got an x-ray, and he looked at her pelvis, and you could see that portion of the pelvis that was broken. And all of the bone fragments came back together in perfect alignment. It was like nothing had happened, except you could tell by the, the, the outline of the x-ray that it was, I wouldn't say jagged, but you could, it's like someone took... Someone took clay and just kind of molded it back into place. And a very vulnerable portion of her pelvis, God healed my wife. In the face of expansion, in the face of God, give us a family to honor you. The enemy was right there and he was saying, no, you don't. You're not going to cross that line. And we were bold enough and we were filled with faith enough and we crossed that line. And we said, we believe that our God has good things in store for us. He has a family in store for us. And the enemy is not going to have any of these things. He is not going to rob us of the joy of a family. And we prayed in faith and God answered our prayer miraculously, church. Where are you in this expansion? What fear are you facing of taking that next step forward? I believe God has good things in store. He has a hope and a future for you. It is good things God has in store for you. But if you seek him with all of your heart, he says, you will find him. Let's do that, church. Stand with me. Father, we come boldly before you and we are seeking you, God. We are, we're touching the hem of Jesus' garment. Some of us need healing. Would you heal in Jesus' name? Father, the dreams that you have placed in hearts to be able to move forward and be able to accomplish certain things in your kingdom and, and certain goals that you have, expansion, if you will, God. You have placed these good desires in hearts. Bring them to pass, God. Don't let the devil have any more ground Father, we confess to you we are a people who are vulnerable to attack. We are vulnerable to the enemy. And at times we can be so weak and we desperately need you, God, to come through and, and to be our strength, to be that wall of fire around us, to be able to declare that no weapon formed against us will prevail. No weapon. We stand confidently in your kingdom of expansion and we are declaring fruitfulness. We are declaring good things in your kingdom and in our lives. Accomplish this, God, in us and through us. Father, take us out of where we are feeling too comfortable and move us forward. And Lord God, before our very eyes, do awesome things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. Have an awesome, awesome week. 
We'll look forward to seeing you uh, Tuesday morning for prayer or Wednesday night. God bless you guys.